How much planning and preparation do you think goes into a visit from the Canadian Prime Minister or the President of the United States? I know that when the President of the United States goes around the country making speeches, he has an entire team dedicated to getting places ready for him to speak. Every square centimeter of the building is gone over with a fine-tooth comb. Phone lines are secured. Uh, security personnel are placed throughout the building and throughout the surrounding blocks. The Secret Service even puts snipers on top of buildings surrounding where he's going to speak just so the president has protection, that he's safe. The team leaves no stone uncovered. Now the president is one of the most protected men in the world. So it's understandable how people would want to make sure that he's safe. They want to make thorough preparations for him. In the same way, there was a team who prepared the way for the coming Messiah. The prophets of the Old Testament all had their own roles, their own messages, in order to prepare the people of Israel for the coming of their Messiah. But there was one man in particular who was designated as the forerunner, the man who would announce the final arrival of the Messiah. And there weren't emails, there weren't news crews and press conferences or Facebook or Twitter or text messaging to get the word out that the, fine, that the Messiah had finally arrived. This job fell on one man, that's John the Baptist. So, how did John prepare the way for the Messiah? How did he get the people of Israel ready for their Messiah to come? In a way, it's kind of similar to how people announce the coming of the president or the prime minister. John told the people of Israel to prepare the way. But he wasn't telling them to prepare just a speaking room or a government building or a, a place where Jesus would come and speak. All the preparation that goes into a president or a prime minister's speech is only for a visit of a few hours. But John was telling the people of Israel to prepare their hearts and lives for the coming Messiah. And John tells us the same thing. He tells us to prepare the way by making straight paths for him, and by seeing God's salvation. Now, when you think of someone announcing the arrival of a dignitary, a president or a prime minister, what's the picture you get in your mind? I usually think of a press conference. Somebody standing at a podium, nicely dressed, nice haircut, good speaking voice, generally happy and welcoming demeanor. But what do we hear about John the Baptist? The Apostle Matthew has these words to say. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. He, he, his food was locusts and wild honey. Now that's a pretty picture, huh? Some smelly, hairy guy out in the middle of nowhere, 
eating bugs and honey right from the beehive. Not exactly glamorous, is it? But we hear that that was John's ministry. That was his way of getting his message across. And he didn't stay in one place. He wasn't in some fancy office or government building. He was out in the middle of the Judean desert, out in the middle of nowhere. He was down on the banks of the Jordan River, which is about 30 kilometers east of Jerusalem. So it's quite a trek from Jerusalem if you wanted to go hear John. Not only that, it was about 4,000 feet down in elevation from the city of Jerusalem. Not an easy road to take and not a very easy way of getting out to John if you wanted to hear his message. But people came from all over the countryside to listen to John's message. They wouldn't go out there to listen to some crazy guy in the middle of nowhere speaking nonsense and making up stories. They knew John had a powerful message, and they wanted to figure out what that message was. Now, in this season of Advent, last week, we began at the end. The season of Advent prepares us not only for Christ's first coming in the manger at Bethlehem, but it also gets us thinking about his second coming. And for a way to show that we've kind of switched modes a little bit, we've entered a new season of the church here. We changed our banners. I'm sure you all noticed that last week and probably recognized it again this week. But there's a reason we did that. We don't do it just so you have something pretty to look at while you're pretending to listen to the sermon. Last week, we began at the end. That's what this first banner says. Christ is coming soon. That's what we focused on last week. We know Christ is coming. We know he's coming again. So what does that mean for us? Well, if we talked about the first banner last week, what do you think we're talking about this week? Prepare to meet him. There's a reason why we have these two banners up here, not just for a show. We know Christ is coming, so we need to prepare ourselves to meet him. And just as John the Baptist prepared the people of Israel, he's also preparing us for Christ's second coming. It's important to notice the words that Luke uses to describe the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. He says, The word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Pretty simple, pretty basic. But, if you look at the Old Testament, God came to his prophets and came to his people through his word. The prophets weren't just out there philosophizing in the desert. We're told the word of the Lord came to them. If you look at any of the prophets in the Old Testament, the very first chapter, the very first few verses of their books, you'll always hear something like this. On the fifth of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi by the Kibar River in the land of the Babylonians. Or, 
In the eighth month of the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo. All of the Old Testament prophets were real men. They lived at definite times in history. That's why we have so many details about them. Like I said, they weren't just out in the middle of nowhere, bored, and they had time to philosophize and think about the meaning of life and jot down some thoughts they had. We're told that the word of the Lord came to them. They had the word of the Lord. And now what do we hear about John the Baptist? The first few verses of our message lesson says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. The word of God came to John. Those same exact words we hear about the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet. But he was also the first New Testament minister. He looked back at what all the Old Testament prophets had said, and he knew that the Messiah was finally here. He had the privilege of announcing that the Messiah had finally come. And in a similar way, we have almost the same ministry as John did. We have the privilege and the blessing of being able to look at not only the Old Testament, but also the New Testament, and see everything that God has told us about his love for us in Christ. We're able to look back at Christ's first coming and see that he paid the price for all of our sins. He was the ultimate sacrifice, and he brought the redemption that was promised way back to Adam and Eve. But we can also look ahead to Christ's second coming, because we know that he will come back and give us our promised inheritance of heaven. So our ministries, our lives of following Jesus, involve pointing people back to what Christ did and has already done for us, but also pointing forward to when Christ will come again and take us to live in heaven with him forever. So what can we learn by looking back at John's ministry? How did he prepare the people of Israel for the coming Messiah? Luke puts it quite simply. He says, He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John didn't draw attention to himself by what he wore, what he ate, or even where he was, but by what he preached. Matthew tells us he also preached that the kingdom of heaven is near. The time had finally come when God would send his son, the promised Messiah, and fulfill all the Old Testament prophecies and promises. So 
John had that distinct privilege to announce the coming of the Messiah. And his message included repentance. John preached a baptism of repentance. Now, repentance doesn't just mean feeling bad about something that you did, or even feeling guilty because you know what you did was wrong. True repentance involves a change. It's a 180-degree turn from where you were going. You need to turn from your life of sin and turn around to God. It, it's not just um, uh, an attitude or a change in behavior. It has to be both. It's an attitude in the heart and a change in behavior. Now, if, you, if you think of a little boy who starts a fight with one of his other brothers, and mom or dad comes and, and breaks him apart and says, okay, now say you're sorry. What, what kind of an apology do you usually get? <sighs> I'm sorry. Do they really mean it? And if they happen to actually mean it, but 10 minutes later they start fighting again, did they actually change their behavior to reflect what they thought in their heart? It's not just one or the other. It has to be a change in the heart and also a change in behavior. And that was John's message. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There are three parts to true repentance. First, it's sorrow over sin. It's actually feeling sorry for what you did. But then the second part is trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. We know that he paid for that sin, and we have to trust in him that he covered that sin for us. And then the third part is actually changing our lives, changing our actions and behavior to reflect the change that happened in our hearts. And we're told that John preached a baptism of repentance. Baptism has the power to forgive sins. And it's that knowledge, that trust in the forgiveness of sins that leads us to change our lives, to reflect the change in our hearts. Now, the prophecy concerning John the Baptist continues with words from Isaiah. Isaiah says, A voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. So John's message didn't just involve baptism, didn't just involve repentance. He also told the people of Israel and us to make straight paths for him. Now, when a king or an emperor would be traveling around the country, he also had a team that went before him to prepare his way. Not exactly to announce his coming, but this group of slaves and servants had a special job. They had to go around in front of the caravan of the king and make sure that all the rocks and the twigs and the tree branches were out of the way. All the potholes and the cracks were filled in so that the king could ride in comfort. The king demanded that he have the most comfortable, smoothest ride possible. And sometimes that actually involved 
making the path straighter so it wasn't winding and twisting all the time. So when we admit that we have deeply failed God and desperately need his forgiveness, we will be preparing the way for the Lord. We know that Jesus is going to come again, and so the way that we prepare the way before him is through that repentance and trust in the forgiveness of sins. But those mountains of problems in our lives seem pretty daunting at times, don't they? The hills of temptation dot the maps of our lives. We have valleys of despair, pits of sin. But John urges us to prepare the way for the Lord. He urges us to fill in those pits and those valleys and to break down those mountains of troubles and to explode those hills of temptation. But how do we do that? The only way we can, we can fill in the potholes and cracks of our lives and break down those mountains and hills is through the Word of God. God's Word is the mirror that shows us how we have failed. It is the bulldozer that levels the mountains and the hills of our pride, our selfishness, and our sinfulness. And once it's done that, once it's broken us down, it leads us to Jesus, who is at the heart and the center of the gospel. The gospel, Jesus, is what makes our paths straight. It's the thing that gives us that soothing comfort for those times of despair. It gives us the motivation to change our lives, to resist temptation. But we know that there will always be potholes in our lives. We always know there are going to be valleys and pits. There are going to be mountains and hills that we need to overcome. But we also know the solution to all of those problems, and that's Jesus. Jesus keeps us on the straight and narrow path. We know that nothing we can do will save us. We can't fill in those bottomless pits of our lives with stuff or the newest gadget or the latest fad. We know that Jesus is the only solution to our problems. And that is Jesus. Not only do we prepare the way for him, we don't just prepare to meet him, we also prepare the way with him. Now the final verse of our lesson for this morning says, And all mankind will see God's salvation. That's still from the quote from the prophet Isaiah. Now what exactly is God's salvation? Well, what does the Apostle Paul tell us in Romans chapter 1? He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. The gospel is God's salvation. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We can't do it on our own. That's what we learned over and over again 
in our series on Galatians. Jesus is the only gospel there is. Jesus is the only way to salvation. We don't do the salvationing. God does the salvationing. And we find that salvation, we find that gospel in the Bible. The Bible is the most published, the most read, the most printed book in all of history. And today, it's even more accessible than ever. We have copies in the library, we have copies in our own homes, we have apps on smartphones, we have the internet. Everyone has access to the Bible. They have access to God's salvation. But do they take advantage of it? Most people just ignore what the Bible has to say. And others could care less about what the Bible has to say to them. But what does Isaiah say? All mankind will see God's salvation. We know Christ is coming soon. We know that he's coming again. And everyone will see God's salvation on the last day. There won't be any more excuses. When Jesus comes back, there won't be any questioning or second-guessing or even denying that Jesus is the only way to salvation. There's going to be no more excuses. Now, there were only a handful of people there to witness Christ's first coming. But we're told that on the last day, everyone will see God's salvation. But who is going to see God's salvation today? What about tomorrow? What about 50 years from now? How can they see God's salvation? If we prepare the way. If we prepare the way. Let us make straight paths for our God. Let God change our hearts and our lives with the message of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let us quit wandering and twisting and turning in our lives, searching for temporary solutions to an eternal problem. Let us see God's salvation in the Bible. Let us see Jesus. Let us make straight paths for him. Let us change our lives, prepare our lives for his coming. Let us shout from the rooftops, Jesus is coming soon. Prepare the way to meet him. Let us show people that we see God's salvation every single day. Not just by our words, but by our actions by our way of life. Let us prepare our lives for Christ's second coming. The Lord is coming soon. The kingdom of heaven is near. Amen.